If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the November 11th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm subbing for Chloe Corcoran today. I'm writer, director, producer, actor, stand-up comedian, Del Shores. Firing your agent? Not yet. Oh, you're on high alert, honey. <laughs> I'm always here for you, Michael Taylor Gray. Thank you, Del Happy Shores. to be here. Tonight, new contributor Stephen Raines debuts his first homophile report with mystery writer John Morgan Wilson. And Michael Taylor Gray has a storyteller's visit with writer Addison Hyman to discuss Kappa Force, his new superhero series on Reverie TV. But before all that... The Honest Tea. Del Shores, put your phone down. I'm answering one of my students. Oh my, he's like a millennial with that phone. Well, hello, everybody. We uh, are ready for another Honest Tea this week. And uh, Chloe Corcoran is not in the studio this week. She's doing some We looked field everywhere work. for we, her. I can't find her. Can't find her. So I was walking down the street right mm-hmm. on here on Kawanga, and I, I saw Michael Taylor Gray just panicking. I'm Del Shores. And I said, Michael, what do you need? I said, I need you, Dell. And I ran, and here I am. And here we are in Studio C. Now, what are we doing? <laughs> oh, oh I, I probably should tell you why you're here. We've been looking at the news, okay? Oh. The, in, in our LGBTQI community, there's a lot of news going on out there, but it doesn't always get reported to as many people as we'd like to share it with. So we're doing our honesty. We're doing our job here to make sure we all stay informed. It's not all bad news. No, we have three good stories. Three good stories, that, but, you know. Some with a positive spin and yeah. um, some that hopefully will have. Exactly. Now, our leadoff story uh, this week is in Upland, California, a young lady named Magali Rodriguez reported that her teachers were terrorizing her because she's a lesbian and to keep her out of a relationship with another girl at the school. Right, and this is this is a Catholic school, a Catholic and, school in our, Upland, California. Yeah, this this story really touched my heart because my daughters both went to Catholic schools. We're not Catholic, of course, but uh, if you know anything about me, but good school here mm-hmm. in the valley. And uh, the, the, but there was there were some issues with LGBT during that time, and I felt for this girl. She started this relationship when she was in junior high. In ninth grade. Yeah. In ninth grade. Well, she, yeah, she started dating. Well, she came out to her friends in middle school. Right. And then she started dating another girl when she was in ninth grade at her Catholic high school. And uh, then the administration found out about it, and yeah. they brought them both in. Oh, yeah. The, uh, that changed when she and her girlfriend were pulled into the dean's office for discipline. The dean told them that there were complaints 
about the relationship than that it was wrong and it couldn't happen at the school. So they couldn't sit together at lunch. They couldn't hold hands. They couldn't even be close to each other. And then what really upset me Mm -hmm. is that they sent them to the school psychiatrist. What kind of psychiatrist is at a Catholic school anyway. Yeah, and they were being followed. Everybody's eyes were on them. They could never be comfortable at that school because they were literally being watched. And there was one time they were sitting together at lunch and a teacher came up right between them and like just was hovering over them. This happened for two years. And part of the darker side of this is the dean said, I won't tell your parents about this. If you follow the rules. Yeah, she wasn't out to her parents, so mm-hmm. it was a threat. I want to go back to that psychiatrist because yes. that is a form of conversion therapy, Oh, if oh you will. that's a very that, good point. That is something that I have fought so hard against, and thank goodness that we're having so many of the states outlaw it. But uh, that, you know, these private schools, they can do anything they want because it's under religious freedom. And we have to look at the ripple effects of what was happening with this story. This intimidation spreads like an infection. She stated that we were really afraid on campus. Magali Rodriguez, she said, We didn't hold hands, we hardly hugged or anything. Other queer kids took notice and decided not to come out or to transfer to a different school. But then she did come out to her parents. She She wrote them a letter. That was the tipping point. She couldn't take it anymore. She couldn't take it anymore. Because her girlfriend had graduated. And, you know, here's where the story gets good. Yes, exactly. Because, you know, you're expecting my Catholic parents to reject me, disown me, and Mm -hmm. they did not. They pulled her out of the school. So her dad actually said that this sounded like a suicide letter. It frightened him. His natural reaction to that, to protect his child, to believe her and accept her and do what was best for her, was the heartening part of it, too. That's where it really hit my heart in a good way. And I wrote a note down on my notes here. Thank God for parents who pay attention. Yes, we had that campaign a few years ago. It does get better, and it is getting better because we're seeing that within religion. You know, I grew up Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist preachers, but we're seeing that the fight is happening now within the churches on our behalf. Yes, but I also want to point out, let's be aware of how entrenched these belief systems are within that structure within these organizations because a spokesperson for Bishop Amat Memorial High School in Upland, California, said that the school does not believe Rodriguez's story is entirely accurate, but did not comment further, citing privacy laws. Any student who is involved in a relationship may socialize appropriately on campus, the school said in the statement. However, as stated in the parent-student handbook, engaging in excessive displays of affection on campus is not permitted. Oddly, the statement also cited the school's anti-discrimination statement, which, wait for it, does not include sexual orientation. Exactly. So that's what I mean. But here's, again, a good ending to this story, and we wish Mogli all the best in her new school and in her new life. And if you're ever struggling, if you ever feel that you can't take it anymore. There is a wonderful organization that we've both been a part of for many, many years called The Trevor Project. And you just go to the trevorproject.org or call... The Trevor Lifeline. The Trevor Lifeline. It's 24 hours, 1-866-488-7386. Thanks, Dell. And every week, Chloe, my wonderful, wonderful uh, Chloe Corcoran co-host for uh, who, Honesty, who, we are still who we're still looking for. Still we're looking still looking for, for it. And, Chloe? You know, we'll find her. <laughs> But, you know, I know she's out there doing some good for her transgender brothers and sisters. And speaking of that, there's another transgender sister that we need to to be helpful. And yes. And, with. 
Yes. Happened in the South. Is this your home state? No, this is my, my nephew and his husband and my uh, my great niece and nephew live in North Carolina in Mecklenburg. Oh, that's right. Because I, I I've seen like your post and things. Yeah. I'm going to to North I'm Carolina. For North, yeah, I'm going there for Thanksgiving. I thought, well, he's not just going to visit. No, you know, just to see the countryside. No, I, I'm going to I'm going to see my family, my real family. These are blood relatives. So there was an election. Yeah, there was last an election week. last week in North Carolina. This is reported in LGBTQINation.com in their politics section from November eighth by Alex Bollinger, a trans woman was forced to show ID to vote because her face doesn't match her name. And you don't need an ID to vote. That's, Not until that's next it. year. Well, actually, well yeah, they, right, I know. Year. They passed this yeah. thing, mm-hmm. and it's all about discrimination. And it it, this was targeted for the black community. But now they, they – this quote just upsets me so much. The chief justice came out and mm-hmm. said, I need ID. And the transgender woman said, what is the issue? He said, the face doesn't match her name. The judge stated, right? She said, our transgender sister – said, why must you see my ID when it's not a requirement? The judge looks at me eyeball to eyeball and tells me, for you, it's a requirement. And then she said, because I'm transgender. She challenged him yeah. went right to it. Oh, yeah. That was chilling to me. And you think in our current administration, which has uh, put in place, I think, over 150 federal judges across the nation of a certain belief system, this matters. This matters. So staying engaged and staying aware of what's going out there and empowering each other and helping each other out where needed. We have to be involved. You but, have to but here there is also something that good that came out of this. Because yes. in a horrible situation, but because she spoke up, they are now having training on transgender and non-binary voters. But we need to follow up on that. Yeah, we, so need, we, we need really to, do. We need to ask. Cause but, they because sometimes they just say what we, well, we want. They right. want. But hopefully that... That's true. You know, th- I'm glad that you're taking a positive spin on that because part of me, the lead up before that little mention was uh, a representative there in North Carolina for the voting system there said that, we you know, we're not going to punish the people at that polling station. We're not going to single anybody out, uh, but we'll do this. We'll give them some sensitivity training. Right. And, you know, I tried not to be cynical about that, but it it's just, hard not to be. It is because, you know, I, and I'm not asking for them to punish anybody with I'm not asking anybody to be spanked, so right. to speak. But there need to be repercussions. There need to be consequences. Because how do people learn if they get away with all that stuff? And let's be honest. I mean, you know, in, in 2013, North Carolina passed a voter ID law, and it was overturned by a federal court. But it's all in the name of discrimination. Yeah. And I'm going to be but honest. Next year, it's, they will it's, start. it's Republicans because it's targeting the black community, and they do not want the black community to vote. So most people registered a certain way. This is detrimental to their vote. Right. It's not the Republican vote that's going to be squashed. That's right. Right. So right. I think it's pretty understood. But this will be fought in courts again. I mean, right now it stands in 2020. It stands, but into, they're, they're going to let it stand. They will. There, yeah. there will be. But it could be reversed by the, the big election in 2020. That's what they're reporting. And that's why we have to get out there and make sure everybody is voting. Uh, in this next election, because as the woman in Cornelius, North Carolina shows, voter ID laws negatively impact our transgender brothers and sisters' ability to vote. Photo ID can out a transgender person and cause them to face discrimination or be prevented from voting if their gender presentation doesn't match the gender marker on their photo ID. But can we give a good shout out to our state, California, because yes. they're the first state last this year, it was yes. this year, 
first state to require training on transgender and non-binary voters for poll workers. I love that. Hooray for Hollywood. And that's a great lean into our third story, which is very, very Hollywood. And we, yes. and we have another, and last week we had a very fabulous Hollywood story as well as uh, the uh, daytime Emmys are opening up a non-binary option for actors to submit to the category that I, were they, I, I that they the identify week, yeah. with. So I think this is fantastic. And on that, and sort of on the heels of that, and I found it fascinating that this came from Bloomberg Business News, November 8th, 2019, as reported by Jeff Green. The lead of the story is titled, Why Stop at 10%? Advocates Push for Even More LGBT Characters on Television. We had 10.2% of the character population on television this past year. That is so amazing to me. I'm so happy about yeah. that because if you think about it, there was a time. I mean, I, I remember when I was producing Queers Folk, the whole show, yeah. of course, was LGBT. But besides Will and Grace and, you know, the characters on Six Feet Under, it was mainly just a guest star every now and then. Mm-hmm. So now we have lots of series regulars. Well, let's see here. Estimates of the percentage of Americans who identify, and this is from our GLAD organization, formerly known as the Gay and Lesbian Against Defamation. Estimates of the percentage of Americans who identify as LGBT vary from 4.5% of the population to as much as 12%, according to GLAD's recent data, meaning that certain subsets of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Americans are now more common on screen than in real life. Yeah, I never thought I'd read that. And it says there's more women, right? There more, more women, more, especially women yeah. and people of color. Right. Are represented. And we have Pose with so many transgender actors. I mean, it is it's a really good time. It's fantastic. And let's see. They, but they want more. Oh, absolutely. That's right, Dell, because you know, in 2018, they set a goal for 2020 to have 10%, and they've reached that before that time. Now by 2025, they want as high as 25%. And why is that? Well, I went over to LGBTQ Nation, and they broke it down this way, that the millennials are identifying as LGBTQI, that's people between 18 and 34 in this country, right. at twice the numbers that you see in the general population. Yeah, lots of non-binary, so, lots of very fluid kids. I just taught uh, college NSU, Northwestern State University, Louisiana. And in my playwriting class, a very small class of five, three out of the five identified as LGBT. That's fantastic. There were some interesting numbers I just want to put out here real quick. Streaming services, Amazon, Hulu, and Netflix had 153 LGBTQ characters. Cable TV channels like HBO, 215 LGBTQI characters. And of the 38 transgender characters on television, 31 were played by trans actors. That's great. amazing. Yes. I, I got the chills when and I read And some really great work. Some crazy really great, work. great work. And this goes to what you were just mentioning. And in general, the average number of female characters, characters of color, and characters with disabilities increased. Yeah. So, and oh, oh, and we can't, this just in, this just in. Last week we talked about Delta Airlines censoring gay content in their in-flight entertainment. This is breaking news, Spe- then. This is breaking. We are breaking, breaking right the now. news, Jasper. In Cole, fact, if you're listening. someone just walked in and handed, handed this. It was Chloe Corcoran. Yes. Chloe. She's gone again. There's something going on. She will be back. She will be back. As we see more LGBT people on television, that doesn't mean advocates fight for representation is over. 
over. Delta Airlines was criticized last month after reports that the airline was broadcasting programming on its flights that cut out scenes showing LGBT kissing, same-sex love scenes, and other depictions of LGBT sexuality. I think in um, Rocket Man, in particular, they had censored a scene of Elton John Crazy. kissing his manager, but keeping in the scene where he gets beat. So, Delta has since said the decision to air the edited versions was an error. Great. And it's reinstating theatrical versions of movies that retain LGBT content. You did this, Michael Taylor Gray. You and Chloe and did Chloe this. And Chloe Corgan. We reported it. We report, yeah. now, I, this, you think about it. We reported it on Honesty. It's changing. For well, our good, and for and, and, and Delta, We're making changes Delta has always been LGBTQ friendly. So I was shocked when I read that story. And you know, American Airlines, which is the airlines that I love so much, they aired my movie, A Very Sorted Wedding, with no censorship at all. Kudos to them. Delta during Pride, are you listening? during Pride Month last year. Are you listening, Delta? You got to put a very sorted wedding on your viewing oh, content. Oh yes, yes, okay. Delta. But, but but hey, yes, this was a happy story and a great way to end the show. But there's a cautionary tale here. Our inclusive equal rights fight is not over because the tag for this story in in uh, this is from Bloomberg News about increasing characters on television for LGBTQI. A Harris poll released this year in cooperation with Glad indicated that the percentage of non-LGBTQ millennials who favor Gay rights fell. Oh wow! To forty-five percent in two thousand eighteen, from sixty-three percent as recently as two thousand sixteen. More of those same respondents reported being uncomfortable in situations such as learning a family member, teacher, or doctor is LGBTQ. So, Trump administration. That's the Trump effect. I believe. Yeah, I think that's. A, I do too. I, my, my mind went right there too. So as we're celebrating, I, I blame so much on I, him, and rightly so. So as we celebrate this increase in our community being represented on television, we always have to keep in mind we need to keep talking to those who don't right. always agree with us. That's right. I always say we have to celebrate the victories, but we also have to realize that there is still much to fight for, and that's. The Honest Tea. Macho Man, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The world-famous disco group The Village People was comprised of muscular macho types. An American Indian, construction worker, policeman, soldier, cowboy, and leatherman biker. When they scored their first hit in August of 1978, Macho Man, they extolled the virtues of working out and staying in shape. The lyrics include this line, Every man wants to be a macho man, to have the kind of body always in demand. The song fit the new image of the modern gay man in the late 70s, muscular, rugged, and by all means, macho. On the other end of the spectrum would be the likes of Homer Simpson, who in one episode of the animated sitcom The Simpsons sang a rendition called Nacho Man. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Noah Scalen. Hello, my name is Colby Keller. Listen to IMRU Radio Magazine. My mama told me when I was young we're all born superstars She wrote my hair and put my lipstick on In the glass of her boudoir 
There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said cause he made you perfect baby So hold your head up girl and you'll go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way Cause God makes no mistake I'm on the right track Baby I was born this way Don't hide yourself in regret Just love yourself and you're set I'm on the right track Baby I was born this way I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Del Shores. Stephen Raines is an American poet, artist, and activist known for his poetry publications, his work as West Hollywood's first poet laureate, his participatory art projects, his LGBT activism, his scholarly work on Anais Nin, and as a contributor to IMRU. Since he facilitates the monthly Lambda Literary Association Book Club at the Weho Library, that seems the perfect place to start. Tonight, we share his conversation with acclaimed mystery writer John Morgan Wilson, author of the book Simple Justice, among others, in the Benjamin Justice series. This is the Homophile Podcast with Stephen Raines, where I interview queer artists and writers about their work. I want to thank everyone for coming out to the Lambda Lit Book Club in West Hollywood. I'm Stephen Raines, and I'm sitting down with mystery writer John Morgan Wilson, where we are talking about his book, Simple Justice. So welcome, John. Thank you very much. John, I wanted to talk with you about... A mystery novel is something that we're all familiar with, and it actually, reading this, reminded me of the mystery novels I read in my youth. And then I realized that this is the first time I've read a mystery novel with a gay protagonist. And I wondered, were you reading queer mysteries before you wrote this? Are there any other writers that you were inspired by? Yeah, I had read Joseph Hansen, Michael Nava, and a few others, but those were the two principal ones. But my favorite... And I suppose it's one of those seminal things that changes your view when you don't even know what's happening, was the Father Brown series by G.K. Chesterton. And they're classics of their time. They're still considered classics. I had the whole Father, my mother did, the Father Brown omnibus of short stories. And I would read him and he would take me into a world, not just a physical world, which he did, but into English countryside uh, parishes. But he could write a whole short story about a missing silver spoon or a set of missing silver spoons. And I just found that so much more fascinating than the hard-boiled stuff and all of that. And so I had a really wide range, but then I stopped writing him when I, I really got to college and moved into literary stuff, real literary stuff, and left mysteries behind until... Uh, Oh, God, it was about 1994, maybe early 95, and a friend of mine said, have you read Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress? And I said, I don't read mysteries. You know, I left them behind as a kid. He goes, no, no, you've got to read this. So I got Devil in a Blue Dress and read it, and it blew my mind. <laughs> I mean, uh, the writing was, first of all, economical, sort of in the Hemingway mold or what the way Hemingway changed literature, but 
so evocative of the culture and the time and history and the intersection of social and mystery writing, social issues and mystery writing. And I actually said to myself, my God, I wonder if I could write a mystery novel from my own perspective. Uh, clearly, Devil in a Blue Dress got me started, but I went down to the Mysterious Bookshop, which was on Beverly Boulevard, and is long out of business now, but I went in and I said, I'm going to write a mystery novel. I've been out of touch of mystery since I was a kid. At that time, I was uh, just about to turn 50. And I said, I want you to recommend what you think are the five best mysteries written in the last 10 years. And so I bought those. And I, I said, maybe I can do this. Again, not meaning that. Do my own thing. Uh, and that was how I sat down to write Simple Justice. I was at a stage when I had left journalism, was working in television, first news, but then documentary, and I knew I, this is good for making money. I didn't want to return to reporting in print, and television wasn't satisfying. I knew right away, you're not writing for yourself, you're writing for lots of other people. So this book felt more like you were writing for yourself. Well, I was at a stage when I said, I want to do something that takes my writing to another level, takes me deeper, and it becomes mine. There are a lot of characters in this novel with a lot of backstories and different relationships. Is this something that you mapped out beforehand in kind of like an outline, or is this that you kind of created as you went along? I outline. Some writers do, some writers don't. I'm an outliner. As a mystery writer, you want to build suspense. And yet sometimes spoilers are given in reviews and also like even with this book and promoting it. And so, you know, how have you handled that as a writer? Well, you hope you don't give away too much. You hope critics don't and reviewers don't give away too much. or You don't have any control over that. In mystery writing, it's called, or maybe in a lot of writing, but particularly mystery writing, it's called delay the reveal. You want to space it out at opportune times. I mean, it's so much about structure, pacing, when to do what and how to do it. You've got to play fair with the reader. You have to give them enough, but not so much it's easy for them to to figure it out. And in my first review of Simple Justice in Publishers Weekly, which are all short, about 250 words, and they're all anonymous, the writer wrote that Benjamin Justice, he hated it. He basically said it was garbage and I shouldn't bother to ever write anything else again. And I'm assuming it's a he, by the way I read it. I'd bet money on it, he was a straight man. He wrote that Benjamin Justice had a brutal sexual relationship with a teenage boy. There was a teenage boy of 18 in the novel who was in jail for murder. Benjamin Justice never met him. He saved his life and got him out of jail, still never met him. And yet this guy put them into bed together. He confused him with a 30-year-old Korean-American character, Jin Jae-sik. But he managed to disparage this book in this very important review. And uh, it was my first real taste of what you faced. And that review probably cost me thousands of orders in bookstores and libraries across the country. Who wants to take a chance on a first, now this is 95, on a first-time mystery writer who's getting panned and is also uh, having sex with a teenage boy, a brutal sexual relationship with a teenage boy, really hurt. Two weeks later, 
People Magazine picked it as the book of the week, their book of the week, which is how it works. Well, you had said that another writer makes a distinction between mystery and thriller. And do you describe your novels as mystery novels, or do you think they also cross over the line into thriller? Mine are um, classic traditional mystery novels, but not classic considering they have a gay protagonist and they're sexually frank. They're very untraditional in that respect. And you have the main character of the series rooted in West Hollywood. And can you talk a little bit about making that decision? You know, a lot of writers, they just start off writing what they know because, frankly, it's easier. It comes more naturally. I was looking out my window, second-story window of my house, down the street into Norma Triangle, old houses and broken-down fences, there was a wind up, a eucalyptus tree uh, outside my house or in the, right next in the lot next door. And I just right then knew that's where I was going to set my series. And I went and started writing, and I, and I had an image. I, I remember listening to the wind bro- go through the dry eucalyptus trees. And when I started writing, I wrote about that, and I wrote a line that said it, the, the wind, uh, I can't remember, drifted through the eucalyptus trees like a dry cough. Well, anyone who came out of the AIDS era knows what dry cough means. If you had a friend who got had a dry cough, he had AIDS. And that was one of the worst things you could ever hear. That was often how people back in the old days, the old days, the AIDS days, of the, you know, the, the early 80s and forward, if a friend called you and you said, how are you doing? And he said, I've got a dry cough. It was like a, he was saying, I've got a death sentence. I've got AIDS. And more often than not, that was the case. I remember when I wrote that line, I didn't think about it too much. But when I went back rewriting, I realized, oh, my God, that came right out of my experience with AIDS and people who had died and been sick. My own lover who died while I was with him. I took care of him this last year. And... From then on, those kinds of things started weaving themselves into the writing, and it became really a lament about surviving AIDS, grief, survivor's guilt that I'd never planned to put into the book. And West Hollywood just started weaving in. I remember I described the old fences in the Norma Triangle that that looked like the the corpses of old fences, that kind of thing. And at the time, uh, and I think most writers do that, you don't sit down and go, oh, God, I want to write a great symbol here. (laughs) What could be a really great symbol that's going to impress everybody? That's not the way I don't think most metaphors and, and symbols work themselves way into writing. If you're really writing, that stuff writes itself out sometimes too much and you later go back and trim it out or improve on it but uh, it tends to be I think if your voice is strong and you're really immersed in the characters and their world and you're writing from your gut from your heart it just brings this stuff out of you and I never intended to get into AIDS or the horror of AIDS or grief that wasn't even on the outline That's why outlines can be dangerous if you're going to be rigid and stick to them in a prefabricated plot. And gosh, this is the way I want my characters to behave to fit my plot points. That's a good way to write a bad book, a stilted, dry book. Do the emotional motivators of the characters, are those also in your outline? Or is your outline generally about backstories? Well, a lot of things 
changed as the book went, and, and I kept rewriting outlines because I'd get an idea for a scene or a transitional scene or things like that as other themes and other characters came into play and so forth. So I always call it a fluid or creative outline. It's a blueprint that can really help a writer like me who needs to have a plot. And, uh, but within that, you want to find the freedom to be as creative as you can be, and voice has a lot to do with that. This is Stephen Raines with the Lambda Lit Book Club, talking with John Morgan Wilson, author of mystery novel Simple Justice. This book has Hollywood landmarks like Norma Triangle and the Lloyd Wright House on Doheny. Is there a specific location you had in mind for Benjamin Justice's home, uh, the back house? He lives in a back Yes. Uh, before I bought my house on Willie Lane over in the Norma Triangle, I rented a little apartment on Hancock, which is a few blocks to the east. And I was just up about half a block up Hancock. And so I knew that street really well. And some of the old, great old craftsmen's have been replaced by condos and so forth. I love craftsmen's houses. And there were two or three craftsmen's, and there was one in particular I really liked. And that was the house I picked for Maurice and Fred to live in. And Benjamin Justice lives in the little garage apartment over the garage. That house looks exactly like that craftsman. It's still there. It's been bought and a little bit remodeled and fixed up a bit. But, yeah, I would pick out specific places. And a lot of that, I think, a lot of readers do that, even if they're not journalists. But as a journalist, you're an observer and a reporter. And you're always looking for concrete detail. We do that a lot. I got ideas for the novel and for short stories I've written just sitting at Starbucks. And so the gay bar, what gay bar did you have in mind? Oh, uh, the out crowd was in Silver Lake, and I can't remember the name of a bar, but it was kind of on a dark, windy street just at the foothills of Silver Lake. I used to live up in that neighborhood, and it was a very popular bar, kind of funky, and you kind of watched yourself walking back to your car <laughs> if you were parked on the street. I just loved that bar, and I wanted to get Silver Lake into it. I didn't want to stick just in West Hollywood, and I wanted to be able to contrast the culture of Silver Lake to West Hollywood. So I thought of that bar as a good murder scene because the parking lot was so dark. And that was where Billy Lusk met his end in the first paragraph yeah. of the story. And then, so you mentioned about being part of social justice movements and so not only did this book come out in, what was it, 96? And so you're writing a very gay story, but you're also writing about interracial romance in this. And if you want to talk about your decision to do that and why that was important. Well, personally, mm -hmm. I'm like a walking rainbow coalition in my own romantic past. Uh, I had no bounds a good-looking man to me is a good-looking man. Race never mattered. So um, I was sort of a ra rainbow co coalition in that respect. So that came naturally to me, and um, I never felt, I never even thought twice about it. Um, a couple of the characters were based on men I da had dated and had really complex relationships with. Um, I remember, though, this is interesting, when the book hit Amazon, and they have those reader reviews. I remember somebody wrote, and I think he wrote from Chicago, and he said, this is bunch, such a bunch of baloney. We've got all these people who were mingling together and interacting, 
and they're all different colors. Nobody does that. That's totally unrealistic. And I'm thinking, that's my life, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've been with Pietro now for over 20 years, and he's born in Italy, raised in Mexico, Mexican mother, Italian father. Before that was a Korean-American guy that I was dating for two or three years, dated black guys. It's across the board. Well, thank you very much for joining us tonight and talking about just the process of writing, especially this genre, and also about simple justice. John Morgan Wilson is a winner of the Edgar Award and a three-time winner of the Lambda Literary Award. Like his hero, Benjamin Justice, John is a former reporter for the L.A. Times and lives in the Norma Triangle neighborhood of West Hollywood. Y'all don't go away, because we'll be right back. You hear? In the Navy, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The disco-era singing group, The Village People, formed in 1977. Their ensemble included an American Indian, police officer, cowboy, construction worker, biker, and military man, all macho types that attracted a gay male audience. Their appeal quickly spilled over into mainstream pop, with the general public quite unaware of the hidden meanings of their lyrics and attire. In their 1979 song, In the Navy, they sang of the joys of being in the Navy with other young men. The U.S. Navy even considered using the song in its recruiting advertising campaign on TV and radio, and allowed the music video for the song to be shot aboard the USS Reasoner FF-1063 at the San Diego Naval Base, complete with cute Navy recruits as extras. But for some reason, the campaign was canceled. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Phil Pollard. Hello, I'm Robbie Kaplan, the author of Then Comes Marriage, United States v. Windsor and the Defeat of Doma. And you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. My mama told me when I was young, we are up on superstars. She rolled my hair and put my lipstick on in a glass of her boudoir. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, cause he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far Listen to me when I say I'm beautiful in my way Cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track, baby I was born this way Don't have yourself in regret Just love yourself and you said I'm on the right track, baby I was born this way Ooh, there ain't no other way Baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way Ooh, there ain't no other way Baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way Next up on Storytellers, I sat down with Addison Hyman, the creator of a new LGBTQI superhero comic series, Kappa Force, on Reverie TV. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI plus community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. Today, I'm speaking with Addison Hyman, the series creator of Kappa Force, the ultra-queer superhero Reverie original series, releasing on Pluto TV, Zumo, and Reverie. 
My name is Addison Hyman. I'm from the Bay Area. I'm a queer filmmaker, writer. I spent nine years in Chicago being a playwright and then kind of transitioned to film, and now I live in Los Angeles. I love the name of your production company, Sassy Computer Production. It's dedicated to high-concept sci-fi fantasy queer storytelling. Tell us about your inaugural series. So Kappa Force, it's the story of five sorority crime fighters trying to destroy evil frat scum and fight the patriarchy, specifically in the evil villain who calls himself the douche. And it's like very meta, very like Buffy the Vampire Slayer meets Scream Queens, and it's just like a romp. And it's a satire, so it's like underlying tones of all like different issues that we're dealing with, but like mainly it's just like a, a funny world in which a queer woman, a trans woman, an Asian woman, a black woman destroy the white patriarchy. What I found really fascinating was that Kappa Force was born out of a deep depression that almost took you down. What was life like before that depression? I was fired from Hair the Musical, so I was fired from a musical about love and acceptance. Uh, and I kind of went into a spiral after that because I was like, what am I doing? Depression runs my family and anxiety. And I was living in a studio by myself, and I was staying up till 5 in the morning, watching Gilmore Girls, and I was eating Totino's Pizza Rolls by the 90, eat them like popcorn. And that would be my meal for literally a couple months. I don't know, it was just like a really bad time. I should never live alone. Basically, what happened was I was watching Scream Queens, and I was like, this is something that I could create. And, like, I'm such a Buffy fan, like like every gay man in the 90s. So I dreamt up this world, and I wasn't really sleeping well. Like, there's a 24-hour Starbucks under Second City in Chicago. So, like, I would go there, like, 1 in the morning, the heart of the, the worst winter ever. And I would just sit there, and I wrote up the first 14 pages of it. And I was like, oh, this is something that I could do. And... Usually for me, this is how it works, is creativity kind of pulls me out of whatever funk I'm in, and that specifically, in my darkest moments, I felt like a hand coming down from the ether. Before that, before that hand came down to pull you out of that darkness, Mm -hmm. that depression, what was the root cause, do you believe, of that depression? My mother's bipolar, and so that's kind of just been a thing I've been dealing with all my life, and... It was during the time of a pretty bad episode. And usually when that happens to her, it affects us all in, like, different ways. And usually depression and anxiety is what hits me. It was the start of, like, kind of, um, you know, me getting on meds and, like, kind of, like, uh, figuring out, like, uh, like, my own mental health journey as I'm dealing with her mental health journey. And so, like, that kind of combination was probably in the midst of, like, the beginning of my, like, discovery of having a panic disorder and uh, dealing with depression. So we fast forward back to Starbucks. You sense this Kappa Force hand coming down from the skies, pulling you out from a Starbucks. Yeah. Into this creative space yeah. where you found your sense of, of being and purpose. That's where Kappa Force was born. Who are the characters in the show? And what are their superpowers? Basically how the show starts is uh, Jeannie, the youngest member, uh, is captured by the douche and... Fast forward to like three months later, and the four remaining members of Kappa Force don't know where she is. She's missing. They're all crime fighters, so they're all kick-butt girls who know how to fight. But very specifically, there's there's the four of them. There's Cassidy Clearwater, there's Pippa Yakamoto, there's Alexa Jones, and there's Lavender Crow. Cassidy's the the lead, kind of like superhero, very type A, very just like, uh, this is my 
sorority superhero force and like I'm the one in control. Then we have Pippa, the second in command, who's like kind of always kind of vying to be the first in command in the fight, and they both have like they're the two like fighter fighters. Then we have Alexa, who's kind of the weapons expert who creates all like the weird like gadgets and all the things. And then we have Lavender Crow. She is the resident hacker. So she does all the computer work, and like those are kind of all the members of Kappa, and it all centers around our new kind of Buffy cipher because Jeannie's missing, presumed dead. They're looking for a fifth member, and eventually in the show she will become the fifth member of Kappa Force as the youngest member, and like kind of lead uh, with them to eventually go and try and destroy the douche and the patriarchy in general. I wanted to tell an inclusive story that just like happened to include people who don't normally get to play with these parts in these roles. And like, to me, that's representation and what I can do in terms of as a writer, white, mixed race, gay writer, like I can just create a world that just cast people who belong in those roles because they've never gotten to be put in those roles before. What kind of impact do you hope Kappa Force will have within the LGBTQI plus community? I just want to make people laugh, honestly, is like the biggest thing because like there's so much... And I love it. And, like, I grew up on it. Stories that are just about trauma. And, like, I I love those. And I, I grew up on those. And they're so important to me. But I want to create space where we can just all laugh and satirize ourselves and also the world. I want to live in a world in which queer female superheroes kick butt and take names. I only write and create stuff that I want to watch. And so I'm hoping that it just gets to be seen by people. And they get to be seen with this show. And then more of this stuff can be created. Because the more that queer content in the genre space is created, and I know that there's an audience for it, the more that there will be made. What were some of the challenges that you faced in creating the show? Money, of course, uh, which is always a thing when you're making independent filmmaking. But luckily, I came from the theater background, so I knew absolutely nothing starting with this. Because I was a playwright, and I was an actor, and I was like, oh god, what do I do? And I met a person named Emily Modaff, and they introduced me to my director, Hannah Welliver. And she is a cinematographer and director and also writer, and she just moved to L.A., and she is basically the reason this happened. Her getting the crew and then getting our producer, Ramon Hewlett, getting our DP and like putting it all together. But on the final day of shooting, we were shooting in Hannah's like, huge loft space, which is like, where the frat party takes place, like the, the fifth and the, the sixth and the seventh episode. There was only one toilet, and we had like 30 or 40 extras, and there was like, this huge like fight scene that we had to coordinate, and the toilet stopped working. It wouldn't flush. So we had to, Hannah, while she was directing, had to fill basins of water from the sink and then pour it into the top of the toilet to like make sure it flushed. So we had people who were allowed to go to the bathroom because it was 90 degrees in there. Everybody was drinking water because we were trying to actually hydrate it. We were having huge fight scenes happening at the same time. Other than that, I had to do a lot of learning. I had to post-produce. I had to learn how to produce, and it was kind of like a very much learn-on-my-feet type situation, but a lot of people put their heart and soul and worked for a lot less money than they deserved, and I'm really grateful for all of them actually like believed in the project. And then we had to do a fundraising campaign, which almost broke me. But then, you know, we kept going and we kept fighting because we believed in the project, and the more people we added, they also believed in it. It does take a village, and you used the entire village, it sounds like. Yeah, we used the entire village. We really did. I don't know what I would do without the people who decided to work with me. Are there a lot of LGBTQI plus superheroes in this genre outside of Kappa Force? No. I mean, that's the problem. I used to know the statistic like off the top of my head, but it's just like the... I think it's, like, less than 10% of actual queer superheroes. I mean, like, there's, it's starting. Like, you know, I know that there's a huge arc on Supergirl... And Legends of Tomorrow, like the CW shows, because Greg Berlanti, like, does that, and he's gay himself. I think with the Avengers Endgame had, like, the first 
gay character in the, the final Avengers movie as like a person who's just like in like a support group but wasn't one of the superheroes. And I know that Captain Marvel is like presumed queer and also Valkyrie and Thor is presumed queer as well. You know, and I know they exist in comic books, indie like queer comics, like they exist like Ghost World also like, you know, like these type of like weird indie like stuff like exists, but n- not mainstream. Not that they need to be mainstream. It's superhero stuff. You could, I would love to see more of that. Cause again, like, there's a huge queer community around the superheroes in sci-fi. It's like, it's the escapism, you know. With that in mind, do you believe that LGBTQI plus people have inherent superpowers? <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, think about it. I mean, like, to exist as an LGBTQ person is, like, literally, you have to go through so much and... Provided you get acceptance, that is wonderful. But like you have to, you have to come out, and that itself is like a superhero type act. Then if you're trans, you have to come out twice, which is a huge superhero act. The mere fact that we exist is inherently powerful. I think we create amazing art, and I have amazing personalities, and create friendships in a way. And being queer and being in queer spaces is some of the most powerful feeling that I get just being alive, you know, like, and that I think in itself is just one of the best things about being queer. Who should see the show? I think everybody should see the show, to be honest, because I think there's jokes for everybody, especially if you like 90s nostalgia, because it's like my, my one of my favorite things about the show is we got a bunch of local Chicago bands to parody a bunch of pop songs. That is, I think, inherently funny to anybody. I made this for queer people, and I want queer people to see the show, and I want them to, first and foremost, enjoy it. And then after that, I think it's pretty universal, but like that's who I made it for, and that's who I wanted to view it and enjoy it the most. This show was born out of a deep, dark depression. For those of us in the LGBTQI plus community who maybe are dealing with depression at this moment, are there particular resources that you used during this time to help you in addition to having that kernel of an idea for Kappa Force come in and help pull you out? I relied on friends. And I'm privileged enough that I was on my father's insurance, so I was able to see a psychiatrist. So like that and my se- and myself was like was my journey and I'm very grateful that I had those opportunities because I know a lot of people don't learning to ask for help is very difficult for me especially when you're in that that dark place you're just like no one's going to care like you'd be shocked how accepting and ready friends are to take care of you when you are in that like really dark place and I'm very grateful that I had friends who were able to take care of me and And then I was fortunate to come up with this idea. And then once that got started, then friends kept being like, yes, yes, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. You know, two years later, we were rapping on set. And it was like we shot 60 pages in seven days. And I was like, I can't believe I got here because truly, I never thought I'd be successful. I've always been that person who's always just like, "Eh, I'll be fine. I'll be like some kind of like in the middle or whatever. And it was actually truly when I finally was like, oh, I created something that I was excited about because friends pulled me out of my depression. I steered the ship until I found other people to also help me steer the ship. And then once we had the 100-person cruise, I was like, okay, wow, we made it. We did it. And like that was the most rewarding experience of my life. And it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't, to have, wasn't for friends who helped me. In addition to those resources, I just want to take a moment and point out that yeah. there's also the Trevor Project. At one eight six six four eight eight seven three eight six, available twenty four seven. There's a trans lifeline at one eight seven seven five six five eight eight six zero, also available twenty four seven. And the GLBT National Help Center at one eight 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 four three four five six four. Sometimes asking for help is the hardest thing to do, but the help is available. 
Yeah, it really is. And like, I'm fortunate in the privilege that I have, but I'm very glad that those resources also exist for people who like are not able to afford that because we go through a lot as queer people and we deserve to be taken care of. Tell us once again your name, the name of the show, and where we can find it and when it's debuting. I'm Addison Hyman. I'm the creator and one of the producers of Capital Force. You can find it on Reverie and Zumo and Pluto TV starting October 27th. If people want to find out more information about the show, is there a particular website they can go to? Yeah, um, you can go to capaforce.com, which is our website, and you also can go to reverie.tv, and they'll have the full schedule. They'll have it uh, streaming online, but also because of Zoom and Pluto are channels, you can also check uh, the local listings to find out when it's airing. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU on KPFK Radio, and you've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Well, we still have a couple of minutes. Enough time for one last word. And that's hard for us. Very, very difficult. (laughs) Tonight, that's the late Doug Guinan reading from his 1998 novel, California Screaming. Kevin changed into a trampy outfit. They were going to pavilions the scene of some of the heaviest cruising in the world, and it was obligatory to address appropriately. Shoppers lingered there for hours in a trance state before settling on a lean cuisine, a single can of Diet Coke, and a pint of rum. Pavilions was where most guys went after the athletic connection if they didn't get sex in the sauna. It was the next logical place. Shopping carts slowed and lingered or simply followed Kevin around. Leon secretly hoped the strangers they passed Guys they had seen around town forever would think that he and Kevin were lovers. It was as if the connection would raise Leon's own stock. They selected some protein and carbohydrates with extreme care, knowing every morsel that went into their bodies would affect their muscle mass, the shininess of their hair, their skin. The skin, of course, being absolutely everything. A combative discussion of gastrointestinal tract conditions arose, so they decided to split up and go on separate search-and-destroy missions. Kevin sought out the spinach juice while Leon hunted down the papaya. Then they backtracked through the produce section, both believing that their hair was crying out for the fat lipids that could only be found in avocados. Nothing was chosen for taste. Look, Leon, tomatoes, great for the prostate. They bagged up 20. Kevin, asparagus? I don't know what it does for you, but it makes your stuff smell really foul. Throw them in. In the bread aisle, Leon examined a package of organic wheat dinner rolls. Darling, put those down, Kevin clucked. Wheat is packed with naturally occurring estrogen. We're not quite there yet, are we, agreed Leon. Far from it. Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate your spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and director of distribution and sparkle, Vosh Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, Email volunteer at imruradio.org. 
And a little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. Next week, get the 411 on my co-host this week, Del Shores, when he joins me for a very special Storytellers. Mm. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Brilliant. Good night, y'all.